Hello and welcome to a special Channel 33 podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm joined by Sean Fennessy and on the phone driving around somewhere in Columbus, Ohio is Rob Harvilla. Say hi, Rob. Hello. Say hi, Sean. It's me. We kind of wish we didn't have to do this podcast. This is a special appreciation for the music and life of Tom Petty, uh, who we lost earlier this week to a heart attack. And Petty was 66. You know, we've kind of in the last couple of years lost... um, some real like Rushmore faces in the the pop music landscape, uh, Bowie and Prince, and and last month it was uh, Walter Becker from Steely Dan. Yeah, Chuck Berry. Yeah, Chuck Berry. But this one felt out of nowhere. It felt sudden, and it really like blindsided a couple of, of us. There's a couple of pieces on the Ringer that you should check out when you get a chance. At, most notably, Rob Harvilla's just absolutely beautiful obituary for Tom Petty. That oh, I, well, geez, thanks. And Rob, I mean, you know, I don't want to get too uh, into the gory details, but like, you know, with Bowie, we knew Bowie was sick for a while. You know, that was like kind of in in yeah. the air. Tom Petty was playing the Hollywood Bowl like two weeks ago. You know, I was there a week ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was a, this was a real shock, and I think that has a lot to do with how we're processing it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, it's it's sort of Prince-like in that way that you just had no indication. You know, he's he's been super active. You know, he's he's put out records with the Heartbreakers. He got his old pre-Heartbreakers band Mud Crutch back together a couple times pretty recently, and like those are really good records. Like, you know, and he could play a show. He could fill up the Hollywood Bowl. He could fill up arenas. You know, with two two and a half hours of songs that you knew, like songs that you knew every single one, and it's it's. It really is shocking, you know, in a way that, that even Bowie wasn't. Yeah, Sean, I mean, I remember just not not to pull the veil back too much, but like just the other day when this when he when there was the, that time period where I think his cardiac arrest was announced and and then there was an initial report that he had died. But then it sounded like he was on life support for a while. You were like, I may need to go home. Yeah, that's an uncommon reaction for me. I just I, part of it, I think, is because I had just seen him at the Hollywood Bowl, and so yeah. I had been spending the past ten or twelve days just listening to his music nonstop. Um, and you know, he's just a kind of a fabric of your life entertainer. And Rob wrote about that, I thought, pretty precisely. Um, he is a person that just feels like he is in your life at all times. Yeah. And Rob, I think you said it. There's a difference between knowing something by heart and and memorizing something. And uh, there's just something notable about the the persistence and the consistency of his songs. So yeah, I was pretty bummed out. And I think a lot of people who were 30 plus were. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to Bill Simmons about this recently, and he was saying, like, I'm not sure if the millennials get this. Bill likes to talk about the millennials all the time now. But he was like, I'm not sure if the millennials <laughs> really understand Tom Petty, but f- f- he does span a generation of fans and I could you could see it at the Hollywood Bowl that was like 30, 40, 50, 60, 60. 70. Yeah. Like there was a, a wide swath of people that were there to see him because he's had this this series of generations of effect on popular music and that's like really uncommon. We can talk maybe a little bit about that later, but I was really um I was I was really struck by it when he got sick. Yeah, I mean, Rob, one of the things that especially like Spotify and and having streaming services now because you have like this, you know, entire history of music at your fingertips at all times is that uh you know yeah. i'll happen into like i'll like, like be listening to super chunk or whatever and um i'll just be like oh this takes me back to 1998 or this this right. cameron song takes me back to 2006 and it's like <laughs> these very specific sense memories but tom petty and i guess this is what timeless means 
it's flat. It's like I, I the songs sound to me the way they sounded in 1988, the way they sounded in 1996, the way they sound in 2017. There is like a, for lack of a better word, a timeless quality to his music. Yeah, I mean, a way I saw it described that really struck me was just like, he's a guy, a song of his comes on the radio and you don't turn it off. Right. You know, you, you never turn it off, even if you're not thinking about him, even if you wouldn't have described yourself as like a Tom Petty diehard, like you, you don't turn that song off and you know that song. You have some sort of sense memory to that song. And I think that applies in the same way in the streaming era. You know, if you just sort of bump into him on a random playlist or just get inspired in that same way. It's interesting, at least for me, like I came to him in his sort of 90s resurgence. Like Wildflowers? So somebody, yeah. Well, well, somebody pointed out, like, right in, I think it was 1993, he put out that best of that was all like the 70s stuff, you know, that, that takes you through Southern accents, maybe a, a couple records beyond that. But, you know, it starts with American Girl, and it's got like all the early mega hits, you know, Refugee, Don't Come Around Here No More. It launched like right in that sweet spot. If you were a Columbia House customer, yeah. Uh, in 1993, and you get 10 CDs for a penny, and, like, you wrote up on all the alt-rock, like, usual suspects or rap or whatever you're into, like, around about the eighth or ninth album you have to pick, like, you start getting a little bored of, like, the presence in a way, and I, I, I think, I just feel like a lot of people got into Tom Petty that way, that he was just, he had a really distinct catalog of 15 fantastic songs, you know, that, that, fit well on the radio next to whatever, next to Pearl Jam, next to Smashing Pumpkins, like next to whatever was happening in the mid-90s. And I, just those records, Wildflowers, Full Moon Fever, you know, which had like maybe his biggest hits ever, you know, those those records were huge. And it, it, it took me a long time to sort of grasp that he had had this full career, like this Hall of Fame career that entirely preceded that stuff. Yeah, there's something that is really unusual about the way that he got famous again mm -hmm. you know he, he he essentially had a, a huge run between 79 through 85 yeah and then he has some hits in the late 80s but then he comes back like a like a shot with full moon fever and then he's sort of like subsumed slash valorized during the grunge era which is a really unlikely thing and there was a lot of conversation at that time and a lot of um awards season performance uh, between Eddie Vedder and Neil Young, and there seemed to be a real connection and a kinship between Pearl Jam and Neil Young. But just looking back right. at a lot of YouTube videos, there clearly was this huge kinship between Eddie Vedder and, and Tom Petty, yeah. too. And, you know, they performed together, and he talked about his songwriting, and he talked about how, you know, he thought it was cool how girls like Tom Petty songs, yeah. and that was, like, a meaningful thing. <laughs> There's not a lot of—you don't hear, like, a lot of girls in the cliched sense um, loving Neil Young as much as maybe a American Girl or I Won't Back Down. Yeah. But— he has just kind of transcended time. Like he just kind of feels like he's been here for a hundred years. Yeah, I, I, so obviously I think all of us have gone down the YouTube rabbit hole over the last couple of days, and um, one of my favorite Tom Petty videos on YouTube is the SNL performance after Wildflowers, where Dave Grohl is drumming for him. And, I was gonna say that was a big one for me too. Yeah, and that's like a very famous story of like Grohl almost joined the Heartbreakers after Kurt Cobain uh, committed suicide, and he was kind of like wandering in the wilderness. And he wasn't sure what he was going to do. And he basically had a choice between joining. To like Tom Petty was like open invitation. If you want to be the drummer for the Heartbreakers, like cool. And Grohl was like, ah, and then he, he made the Foo Fighters record. And it was like that. It's a very interesting sliding doors anyway. But 
I bring up this story to say that one of the coolest things about Tom Petty that I don't think we talk enough about is him as a collaborator. Because I think you just think of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and there's like a degree of an ego play in any band where like the first, it's like the person and the band. But my, I'll, I'll remember him as like a really cool collaborator. Rob, you touched on this at the end of your of your piece where you put the video up, another like YouTube heat rock of Petty playing <laughs> While My Guitar Gently Weeps at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Prince just coming uh. and like basically burning down the entire building. But that you had a right. really interesting like take on that. Well, I you know, I, I love that video from the start and I really love that it. it's become like one of the iconic sort of live videos of the last decade or however long it's been. You know, I think Tom Petty did a lot of that stuff, like a lot of like Rock Hall of Fame stuff where like it's 12 people strumming acoustic guitars yeah. simultaneously <laughs> on stage. And like, it, it, gets, it gets a little tiresome like over time, but like, you know, that one from the beginning was just a sensation. And I, I think I made the mistake for a long time of thinking that like Petty wasn't fully in on it or just, that, that Prince obviously just sort of came in there and, and, and knocked everybody over and just took the thing over and that it sort of irritated Petty, like that wasn't the plan, you know, and like I sort of saw this as a generational divide or something like that. But I, even even in recent years and then especially now, unfortunately, like I, I watch it now and I sort of see like how masterful it is just to be the straight man in that situation, just to be able to take a step back and to just play, you know, four chords or however many it is, and, like, sing your backing vocals and just let Prince, like, burn the place down. So, like, to be part of the scenery that gets burned down. Yeah. But to do it in a way that, you know, you keep your dignity and you just cede everything to him. Like, it seems like an easy thing, but it's not, you know? And I, just little, like, just a few little smiles I see from Petty. Like, I just, I, I sort of got it finally how vital his role was and how subtle it was and how he was totally a part of it and was just content to be a very small part of it and how that made it, you know, so much better, made Prince seem so much bigger. Yeah, he cracks a smile there in, like, the third guitar solo. <laughs> and it's just like, you're just like, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. like you're basically sitting next to, like, the reincarnation of Jimi Hendrix. You have to laugh. Yeah, I think you yeah. make a good point, too, about him being an unknown collaborator in a lot of senses, too. Right? Obviously, traveling Wilburys, he's arguably the yeah. fourth most iconic member of that band, yeah. um, which is an, an amazing thing to say. And also, I listened to um, a conversation he had with Terry Gross on Fresh Air in 06 uh, last night, which was fascinating to hear. And he just seems like kind of a gentle, thoughtful, interesting guy, which is unusual because he describes his upbringing as being this like white trash kid. But in the conversation, right. he talks a bit about collaborating with Johnny Cash near the end of his life. Mm-hmm. And Johnny Cash covered I Won't Back Down yeah. shortly before he died as part of the American recordings. And they had both worked with Rick Rubin. And yeah. Exactly. They are brought together by Rick Rubin. And yeah. I, didn't, I didn't realize that he and the Heartbreakers backed him up on that performance. And they were in the studio with him mm-hmm. making that, too. So, you know, he has this really fond and um, tactile relationship with a lot of his elders that is, I think, unique among people. You know, he was very quickly accepted by George Harrison, very quickly accepted by Bob Dylan, by Johnny Cash. Yeah. You know, he's very... 
Um, he's cl- calling Johnny Cash John in the interview. You know, he has that kind of a closeness to him. <laughs> What's that Dylan double disc live, like the 30th anniversary yeah. one? And I think like Booker T and the MGs were the house band for that. But there's a lot of songs on there of like the Heartbreakers. And then like a guy comes out and plays like they were like another house band for that show. And it's like it's pretty it's pretty awesome to hear where like I think that they sometimes got knocked a little bit to for basically being like, it's like Beatles tunefulness with Stone Swagger with, you know, like kind of some skinny tie stuff. But they were, you know, the consensus band. Like you could just be like, yeah, if you like this kind of music, there's no way you can dislike this band. Yeah, I've been saying 100% approval rating the last couple of days, which um, like nothing has that now. And I don't even think anything had that in 1984. <laughs> yeah. But people just like that band. Yeah. Rob, there's one thing that happens with the greatest hits, like the one that Petty put out. And I think it, there was something like it, I read something where it was like, it spent six years on the Billboard Top 200 or some wild right. statistic. But one thing that happens when an artist is like a greatest hits artist is that the eras of their career get a little, um, it's it, they get a little less distinctive because we are so kind of like, yeah, man, these 25, yeah. these 30 songs, and you just don't even think about things in terms of early or mid-period or whatever. But you were alluding to that. Right. But when you got into Tom Petty, he had some very distinctive I mean, his his career basically starts right around when Elvis Costello's career starts. You know, he is a essentially pre, you know, post post punk, pre new wave kind of rocker who is drawing from a lot of classic rock influences. But I think one of the reasons why Eddie Vedder thinks Tom Pe- like girls like Tom Petty is Tom Petty's songs like they they had some shake to them. They did. I mean, Power Pop, I think, is another thing. Yeah. That I mean, he did a lot, especially in the early early days like even the losers you know it's 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 it works for me on that level you know it's, it's like an earthier sort of version of the cars or whatever and that was my first big band and so i think that's part of why i gravitated back towards old tom petty eventually yeah. collaborator wise i also need to shout out stop dragging my heart around yes my favorite uh you know 80s duets or however you, you're they're just sort of yelling at each other but that his chemistry with stevie nicks on that is, is, is pretty fantastic and i the, the ringer put up a really great post it was sort of everybody picking a song and talking about their memories both of you guys are involved in it and i, I i'm sorry i can't remember the name of who put it up but they put up a version of learning to fly which that, i think what is that like late 90s or early 2000s? I think it's like the that, that's, there's well there's one from the Gatorville show that he played where Stevie Nicks was just singing backing vocals in the Heartbreakers on that that's tour. It. And and they do an acoustic learning to fly that she sings on. Yeah. Yeah, and like the crowd, you know, he's collaborating with the crowd functionally like they sing the chorus for a couple minutes and like that's the one that really really brought me up short, you know. In terms of the rabbit hole I've been down in the last couple days, I was just going to say that it, you know you talk about the power pop era with Dan the Torpedoes. He collaborated with Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics. I just learned that yeah. he wrote "Don't Do Me Like That" for Jay Giles' band. Yeah, and that he decided at the last minute to keep it for himself. But I didn't even know that that was something he did. Sounds like it. Yeah, and then yeah. it does sound like that. Yeah, and then like Sean said, there's that kind of like late '80s in you know into the great wide open and and sort of because it has learned to fly brings him back. But, you know, he starts working with Jeff Lynne from ELO and they, it yeah. starts adding like a, maybe a little more of an elaborate orchestral production sound. And the song I wrote about for the um, for the Tom Petty songs post is this song Walls.
which is from uh, his soundtrack cool. album to this Ed, Edward Burns movie, She's the One. I love is, She's the One. I just want to say that out loud on a podcast. I, I, one day you and I are going to do an Edward Burns pod. Uh, Shout out to my Long Island brother, Edward Burns. Yeah, um, but you know, a lot of these songs had been leftovers from Wildflowers, and then he kind of just had the Heartbreakers come in and, and do a couple more. But the one that I wrote about is this song called Walls, which is essentially like a four-chord, pretty straightforward song. It's a, just a real Tom Petty song. But uh, Rick Rubin puts all this, like, you know, ELO white album production over it. And then they just get out of the paint for Lindsey Buckingham to do, like, nine different backing vocal tracks. And I, I, I was asking Greenwald about this the other day. I was like, am I imagining? I think that out there on the Internet somewhere is the ISO Buckingham vocal tracks. And you can just hear him singing to himself. Yeah, Buckingham hero ball. But that's the thing that's so cool about Petty is he kind of knew what he couldn't couldn't do. And he would just like, he can't put together a personal Beach Boys choral backing vocal track, but Lindsey Buckingham sure can. And it, it was just so yeah. awesome. Every, every few years he would just do something like that. He actually performed yeah. Walls at the at the Bowl um, oh, did last week, which was unusual because he doesn't play it that much. And there was a funny moment where that's a song my wife and I really like a lot. And we were standing for the previous song, which I'm sure was some massive hit. Yeah. And he started to play Walls, and people started to sit down. <laughs> and, and we looked at each other, and we were like, "Oh, these they're not real heads. Yeah. Like, they don't know about. They don't know about. She's the one." Yeah. <laughs> Um, Rob, one of the things that uh, I think what happens is as soon as an artist passes. Uh, you know, there is a little bit of a spit shining of their of their of of their not their persona necessarily, but like, you know, when Bowie right. died, he was just like the patron saint of creativity. And we, you know, a lot of the things that I thought were like amazing about Bowie, like Berlin Coke Lord Bowie, you're just kind of like, well, that's inappropriate <laughs> to really talk about. I don't have any like bad stories about Tom Petty, but I was watching this video of um, him in 1985 and he's playing. He's kind of like strumming his guitar on stage. Everybody's kind of, um, everybody's kind of cheering along, and he's like, "Yeah, man, you know, we were supposed to. I haven't been on tour in a couple years. We were supposed to be out last year, but I had a fit, and I punched the wall. And the doctor, you know, they, they you know, it's really embarrassing. You get taken to the emergency room, and the doctor's like, "You're a guitar player, huh? Well, it doesn't look like you're ever gonna play guitar again." And I said, "Fuck that." <laughs> and so, and he's like, and then for for a couple months, and I couldn't even play guitar, and I it was. And then one day I picked up my guitar and he just plays the opening riff of The Waiting. And the crowd just loses it. He had swagger. Like that that was a long way of saying that Tom Petty seems like such an unassuming guy. He was he was a rock star. Yeah, like he somebody like Bowie can sort of use their dark dark side in like a really overt way and like create a whole new persona out of it and i don't think that was ever tom petty's way like it's not that he hit it necessarily but it was never the point you know you we we didn't we never got to see him at his worst or at his ugliest or whatever you know like i i just go back to full moon fever you know which is the first you know the first one i really got into and probably the best still my favorite you know and like collaborator wise as you said like it's it's him and jeff lynn and it's like it's technically a solo album but like most if not all of the heartbreakers are playing on it in some way and it's just it's this really fascinating mix of as you say like really really ornate and just the harmonies are really complex but it's also really simple you know and i i, I think it sort of unifies the different eras of him really well and it also unifies 
like the darkness and like the brightness of him as well. Like there's some really sort of snarling, swaggering stuff on there. Like you think of running down a dream. Like I, in high school, I took guitar lessons for like a really brief and terrible period. And like, Tell I us was more. Trying to learn to play, running down a dream. You know, it must have been like the most painful. Na, 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 na. I loved exactly. how you described that, Rob. You said I think like like the secret agent role or something. You know that theme that yeah, sounds so fifties TV show. Yeah, it's like a film noir type thing, you know, and you put that up against, like, I, I say in my piece, and it's like a super emo thing, but I just, when my first son was born and I was in the hospital and they handed me him for the first time, I was like, I had no plan, I hadn't thought about it, I was like, I should sing him something, like, I should sing him a lullaby, he's fussing or whatever, and I couldn't think of anything, and I just, I came around to All Right For Now, to a Tom Petty song on Full Moon Fever, like, it's not one of the best songs, but it's it was like the only legit lullaby I could think of. And it was just, it was the sweetest thing I could think of at that time. And for those two songs to coincide on that album, you know, it just, it just brought the various phases of him as a musician and as a human together in this really amazing way. Yeah. The, the personnel listing, like the, the lineup card for full moon fever is kind of unfuckwithable because it's Tom Petty, Mike <laughs> Campbell and Jeff Lynn. And George Harrison uh-huh. and Jim Keltner and Ben Montench and Roy Orbis- Orbison and Del Shannon. Uh, wow. That's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> Del Shannon? Is he Del singing Shannon's on that album? has barnyard noises on the Hello CD listeners <laughs> interlude. Del Shannon of Runaway Fame? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because Tom Petty wrote a Del Shannon record. There's like a Del Shannon record that's basically like the Heartbreakers uh, backing up Del Shannon. I have to go find that. Yeah, it's really cool. I wanted to kind of go into maybe, I mean, not to put you guys on the spot, and we've talked about some of our favorite songs and favorite moments, but uh, why don't you guys give me each the the Tom Petty greatest hit song that, like, means the most to you, and then give me one kind of underrated Tom Petty jam that, that doesn't get talked about enough because he's got 35 songs. Like, I, Rob, I think you posted in your, your obit you had the final set list, and churlishly I was like, I can't believe he didn't play Walls. You know, like I, I was like, I was like looking, and I was like, I think he doesn't. Th- th- there's some song he didn't play, and I was like, that's outrageous. How could he? How could he skip that? But do you have like a greatest hit that you connect with, and then like an underrated track that that people should check out if they haven't heard it? As far as the greatest hit, you know, Free Fallen, American Girl, like the obvious ones work really well for me. I I think I say in my piece, like my favorite single thing he's ever done is "It's Good to Be King." Just for a while. Which is on Wildflowers, and again, like what I loved about Tom Petty was how well his songs fit into the alt rock radio of the yeah. '90s, which is what unfortunately I was raised on, and just how well a song like "You Don't Know How It Feels" fits. Like you said, like I remember Grohl on Saturday Night Live playing that song and being struck by how simple the drum beat is. You know, it's just the same thing over and over for four minutes or whatever. And to have the guy from Nirvana being willing to sit there and play that song, like, it, 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 it told me a lot about the reverence in which Tom Petty is held. And I, you know, so those songs from that era work really well on me, but it's good to be king. It's like, it's, it's a super emo thing, but just the fade out on that song, like, it's a really gentle and really lazy and sort of dazed kind of song. And it just ends with this sort of piano and string thing. It's just, it's a little more ornate and a, a little more flowery than, you know, in my experience, Petty was usually willing to get. But, you know, I, I think that that's what partly made it really effective. 
to just hear that on the radio, like in the midst of whatever, like bullets with butterfly wings or yeah. snails or something like that. Just yeah. the contrast between the rest of his catalog and the contrast, especially with what I was mostly into at the time that that song was popular. Like it just always really struck me. And like going back and listening to it on repeat now, like that's the other thing that sort of really got me emotionally just in sort of trying to process this. As far as like a deep cut, um, all right, for now, I guess would be it. I, isn't what he, Sean? Isn't your favorite song of his "You're So Bad"? Yeah, though "You're So Bad" is also kind of a hit. You know, yeah. "Good to Be King" Isn't and "You're it? Yeah" and "You're So Bad." They're they're both on the okay. greatest. They're both on the second greatest hits albums. Highway like, Companion or whatever is that? What that second one is? Oh, uh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna pick "Zombie Zoo" then, <laughs> which is I think it's either the last song or the second to last song. Even as a dumb teenager, I was like, this song is very, very dumb. Like, it's just, it's sort of a silly throwaway thing. And, like, I I read a recent, I think Steven Roderick hung around with Petty. Like, they did their 40th anniversary Heartbreakers tour. Uh, it was either, I guess it was, I, is this the tour, that's the tour that, that he was on now, actually. And, and he got to hang out with him for a few days. And, like, Petty was complaining specifically about Zombie Zoo. He was like, I can't believe that that song made the album. We had so much better stuff. Like, it's a near-perfect album, except for that song. And, like, even though I, it was objectively sort of much, much sillier than the rest of the album, I think that the contrast worked really well. Like, it's, the dorkiness is an essential side of Tom Petty, I think, as well. Like, that silliness. And I think that that song captures it really well. That must also be the song that Del Shannon provided barnyard noises for, right? <laughs> I don't know. It's a CD interlude. I know what Chris is talking about. I had Full Moon Fever on tape, and then when I listened to the CD version, like, there is a thing in the middle where where Tom Petty comes on, he's like, hello, friends, you know, for CD <laughs> listeners, we're going to do this interview. And there's, like, there's barnyard noises in the background. Like, I remember that. Like, I would not have ID'd them as coming from Del Shannon, but that makes a lot of sense to me now. What about you, Sean? I wrote about the waiting, mm-hmm. which I think is like the most emblematic of what made Petty great. I wrote about the concept of phrasing and the way that he was able to kind of string together six words in a row that just kind of stuck to you. And that song is a great example of it. You know, Rob mentioned even the losers earlier. Like, even the losers get lucky sometimes. It's just one of those, it's like it, you can't escape phrases like that. It, there's a bunch of Tom Petty lyrics that are, you're like, wait, is that, was that a cliche before he said it, that? Exactly. They're so perfectly like little like fortune cookies, but you're just like, wait, it's that was 1985. Did anybody say even the losers get lucky sometimes before that? Like, yeah. <laughs> my, my, imp- my interpretation of the waiting, even as a teenager, was like, a kid waiting to get laid maybe because I was waiting to get yeah. laid and like I was reading about the song quite a bit and his interpretation of it is like quite different he you know he describes first hearing the phrase when Janis Joplin talked about waiting to get on stage but then he said it was about waiting for your dreams and not knowing if they will come true I always felt it was an optimistic song I suppose dreams could be getting laid but he's obviously interpreted it to be this broad easily applied to anyone's life sort of phrase yeah. and that's just an amazing skill that he had um I also just, that song just sounds good. There's like something about the production of almost all of his songs that are is so timeless. I don't want to say timeless too many times in this conversation, but it's amazing how he's been able to do that. Deep Cut, um, I'll return to the conversation I had with Bill Simmons and I'll rep for what something that he wanted to talk about, which is he was 
proclaiming that Pack Up the Plantation Live, his 85 record, is like one of the all-time classic live albums that doesn't get talked about anymore and that live albums are just not a thing anymore. And he specifically mentioned about halfway through the record, there's a version of Refugee where he's kind of hitting the second chorus and he just turns the microphone to the audience. And they sing. And they sing everything. And then they finish the song for him and then when the song ends, he says... You guys are gonna put me out of a job, man. <laughs> in that in that petty petty stoner twang, and it's just like an iconic moment in him being everybody's friend. And he had this galvanizing ability. And you know, I saw it uh, a couple weeks ago when I saw him live. There's still the only time the other only other time uh, people sat down during that show was during one of Rob's favorite songs. It's good to be king. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which, which was sad. Yeah, I, I think um, his his live records are good, too. Yeah, know? man. We also haven't even talked about Peter Bogdanovich's four-and-a-half-hour documentary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is, um, I love Peter Bogdanovich, and as you can tell, I love Tom Petty, but that movie is a, a long sit. <laughs> There's a lot of mud crunch in that movie, there isn't is, there? There is, a lot of origin. Um, I'm going to go, this is funny, so the other night, Sam Donsky texted me, and he was like, what are your five with your top top pet and now I'm already like this song wasn't in my five, but I, I feel like um it it's an example of why I thought he was kind of a genius is that you take something that is essentially a very basic you could teach Rob Harvilla how to play it on acoustic guitar in a couple of months <laughs> and uh you turn it into just a absolute diamond of a song and that's don't come around here no more just because that was this union of very simple beautiful song with absolutely jaw-dropping production like when you listen to that and all the things that are going on in that with the backing vocals and the the um, mandolin that is essentially being there and i just watched you can find it online there is a 12 minute version of that song uh live that they do where like mike campbell loops guitar feedback and then picks and it's like a loop of that and then he picks up a mandolin and starts playing that and it's just like the band is like really locked in so that's I mean, I don't need to really talk about Don't Come Around Here No More as if, like, nobody's heard it. Uh, that's that's probably my favorite greatest hit right this second. My favorite, lo- like, like out of nowhere cut is is the Apartment song, just because it has that absolute, like, it sounds like it could be a Guided by Voices song. It, it, it's, you know, it's on Full Moon Fever, and it's, it's that straight up, like, the thing I love about his lyrics were that they were kind of like, shit's chill, man. <laughs> you know, like, all of his songs are just, like, Stuff's bad, but it's okay. But I, you know, I miss you, but like, let's not make a big deal about it. Like, and that's, it, it's like the actual, like, most songs make such a huge deal about heartache or loneliness or elation. And it's just like, I used to live in a two room apartment, neighbors knocking on my door. Times are hard. I don't want to knock it. I don't miss it much that at all. And then it's like, oh yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> like, it's like that. It's just such a perfect sentiment. And the song is bananas. It's so good. So, yeah. Um, yeah, anything else you wanted to hit? I feel like there's two things that are notable about him that he was able to do better than m- most people. One, he had amazing music videos, and that's been that's been yeah. written, written about a little bit. And obviously, it's something that made him a popular figure in the 90s as a 45-year-old man, which imagine a, who is a 45-year-old man right now that could be on MTV or the, you know, who could be at the top of the Apple streaming charts yeah. that, that had records 25 years ago. I don't, does that, Rob, can you think of anyone? I was trying to think of what the modern equivalent to this would be. It's like if the teens got really into Eddie Vedder all of a sudden, you know, I, I, I don't think that person exists. How old is Jared Leto? I have no idea. <laughs> That's a good think. point. Yeah. He, he's kind of a cyborg, but um, maybe literally a cyborg <laughs> uh, in Blade Runner. But 
that that to me is fascinating, and part of it is because he had such great videos, like the Free Fallen video, mm-hmm. which stars a movie star, and um, Mary Jane's Last Dance, which stars Kim Basinger. Mm-hmm. You know, he had this knack for yeah. creating, and I, the don't don't come no the you don't know how it feels video, which is like kind of iconic and has that like rolling moving background. Yeah, that's the Phil Jawanu era. Yes, exactly. I feel like Wes Anderson just ripped off his whole style from yeah. the you don't know how it feels video. Um, so there's that, and then in addition to that, he's um. He's a great uh, cameo in movies, either as a song or as a person. Oh, my God. And I mean, Silence of the Lambs. You just hit on Silence of the Lambs on the rewatchables a few weeks ago. Obviously, Free Fallen and Jerry Maguire is outrageous and ridiculous. a lot of conversation about whether in that performance it's the first time Tom Cruise has ever heard Free Fallen, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is a theory I enjoy. Uh, I don't know. Rob, do, can you think of any other movie moments with Petty? I'm trying to. I mean, Silence of the Lambs is always the one that I go back to. All right. Well, let's wrap it up there. Uh, we'll put out a playlist. I've got one. I've got one going and we'll, we'll attach that to the to the to the post and everything. Thank you so much for listening to this special Channel 33 pod in appreciation of Tom Petty. For Rob Harvilla and Sean Fantasy, I'm Chris Ryan.